Greetings of love in the name of Christ this morning, our bridegroom, who is eagerly, I believe, anticipating his marriage to his bride, the church. The, um, my mind went in several directions, I guess, in thinking of the lesson and our place and preparation for that time. Revelation says there, in relation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says, His wife hath made herself ready. That's the stage of life that we are in today as Christians, in preparation for that, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is Christ, our bridegroom, ever disappointed with what he sees in his bride? That's a challenge for us to think about that. Are we intent on keeping our eyes on our bridegroom. That song we just, or this song just before the last one we sang, second last song, we sang there that the bride eyes not her garments, but her dear dear bridegroom's face. That's a challenge, isn't it? We think about those of us who are married and know how at times we discover in new ways how selfish we are. You think about our relationship with Christ. You know, what level of selfishness or disinterest maybe is there. There was a, I don't remember all the details of this, but there was a photographer that did a lot of weddings, as I remember the story. Did a lot of wedding photography and this person had an interest in numbers, I guess, statistics, and went back through a lot of those wedding photos, wedding shoots over the years, and did a little survey in relation to wedding pictures, how they appeared in relation to each other, related to each other, and the success of that marriage, and came up with some very interesting things about body language on wedding pictures and the success of marriages. I don't remember, again, all the details of this, but a couple things I remember. One is, one of the things was that when a wedding picture is taken, whether the couple are leaning toward each other or standing stiff from each other, um, and those who were not leaning toward each other as a couple, majority of them, those marriages did not end well. Um, anyway, I just found it interesting. You think about the spiritual relationship. And I think another one was, you know, when there was a lot of pictures of the bride and groom separately, maybe with their friends, versus more pictures of the bride and groom together. That also was in the survey indicative of the marriages then that did not have that strength or stay together or whatever. Now, in relation to Christ and us as a Christian, you know, what does the world see? Are we attached to Christ? Are we loyal to him? Do we lean toward Christ in our relationship? Or are we indifferent. Just a few thoughts. Appreciate what was shared in the Sunday school lesson. This morning I'd like to think of a subject, probably it's a little different than what we often think about, but I think it's a very important one. This message was on the back burner, we could say, so to speak, for over a year maybe, ever since someone had suggested it for a sermon idea sometime. This is probably going to be several messages, a series of messages. And I'd like to look at identity, tradition, and culture. Identity, tradition, and culture. The longer I've meditated and prayed about this subject and observed what is happening in our society, in families, and in churches, the more convinced I am that this subject represents one of the greatest existential threats of our time 
to us as a people of God. Not just us, I'm talking in a broader sense. If there are questions, I'd just like to say this as a disclaimer in the beginning. You know, I would appreciate if anyone would have questions that related to some of this that come to your mind while we go through this this, this series together. Um, please give them to me. I'll try to answer them or work with them. I don't feel really qualified at all to share this. There's a lot of there's going to be some history involved in this, and I think it's a bigger subject than what. I can wrap my mind around at the moment. But I would like to explore it together because I think it is very, very crucial to our spiritual survival. Turn with me, first of all, for an opening scripture to Colossians 2, verse 8. A very, very um, pertinent scripture when you're thinking about this whole idea of identity, tradition, and culture. Colossians 2 and verse 8. If you back up and notice that he says in verse 7, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And now verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Then he says, of course, in relation to Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Here is a warning in relation to, it applies to this subject, again in relation to identity, tradition, and culture. A warning that we are to beware lest we can be spoiled or taken off course through philosophy, vain deceit, after the tradition of men, and not after, and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, turn with me to also to Second Timothy three. I think this scripture also is part of the foundation in looking at this subject in relation to the last days and the importance of what it means to us. Again, think about this in the idea of, of identity, tradition, and culture. 2 Timothy 3 and verse, I'll actually read the chapter, 1 through 17. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of these sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be made manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let's bow for prayer.
Father, we ask your blessing and your guidance upon us as we again look into the scriptures and endeavor to understand these important areas of life and to understand the world in which we live and the dangers of the world in which we live as it relates to our identity, as it relates to tradition, as it relates to culture. We know, Father, that the devil is working to destroy us in so many different ways, but we thank you for your power. We thank you for the illumination of your Holy Spirit, and may he continue to illuminate our hearts with truth again today. We ask the name of Christ. Amen. I'd like to just, first of all, give someone an introduction to what we're talking about, and give a bit of a background of this as an introduction. Then we're going to look at some word meanings. Thinking about identity, tradition, and culture. And we're going to be looking at the relationship between these three. Now, unless I believe we understand the relationship of these three forces upon our life, we are going to be really handicapped to survive spiritually in the pressures of the last days. We read here from 2 Timothy 2 or 2 Timothy 3, which really is a chapter giving warning in relation to the last days. It explains what's going to happen, how this is going to be, and and also then the foundation for surviving this, which is of course in the last uh, two verses, three verses. Well, more than that, four, uh, four verses, 14 uh, down to verse 17. We're going to come back to these verses at a later time in this in the, the series of messages. But we understand that there's there's the the the, the people of God has have always always throughout history throughout the not only sacred history but in church history have always faced the pressures of culture. And 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 there's always been the work of God throughout history, and preserving his people, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, to preserve them in the midst of a worldly culture. Now, according to this scripture, 2 Timothy 3, and uh, there will be other scriptures in relation to Christ's teaching about the last days, that those pressures are going to increase. They're going to be more difficult and we sit here so peacefully this morning in, in, in a lot of ways compared to a lot of people in the world. And the, 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 one of the burdens of this whole thought in relation to these three areas is, and it goes back to what Dale talked about in the devotional, and I enjoyed that. You know, you know the, the cultural pressure upon us can many times be almost like radioactivity. You know, and yes, we can see some of it, but not all of it. And there's, a, there's an emotional, there's a, there's a psychological pressure of, of living in a society that is upon us that I'm afraid sometimes we don't always take into account and understand what, what is happening. So when you think about you know, these pressures, and we don't need to look very far to see the effects of these pressures. People that have one time stood for truth, the simple teaching of Scripture. And it's one thing I know, I haven't been to Bangladesh yet. I'm looking forward to being able to go hopefully next spring. But, but the brethren talk about it over and over again. And Brother Tim referred to it last Sunday afternoon. The simplicity of their faith. And they said, well... They didn't realize that before. You know, the Bible says this. Well, then we have to do it and figure out how how to do it. I'm not sure we always have that. I'm not sure I always have that. But we're going to have to have that in relation to surviving the cultural pressures of the last days. Now, and so there are those who have been close to us, those who... We know many that at one time stood for the simple faith, as I said, the simple gospel, and find ways to somehow justify themselves 
to do something different. They become part of the statistics of the falling away of the last days. I have relatives, you know, that uncles and aunts that at one time, you know, stood for Bible truth and and today can justify all kinds of things in the name of Christianity that are contrary to what the Bible tells us. And you just say, well, how did they get there? How did it happen? It would seem like in the last 50 years or so, in most Western societies, the idea of tradition is held in a negative light. We're going to be coming back to this later in another message, Lord willing. But I do believe in the last 50, 60 years, there's been definitely a shift. And when we look at the aspect of tradition, we want to look at it also from the historical perspective. Activities that were considered normal and wholesome have been and are being discarded as being old-fashioned with hardly a second thought. And I'm talking about this in general now. I'm not talking about just church life. I'm talking about in general, which could include personal life, family life, church life, society. You name it. It's all, it's all around us. It's, we, we live in this, in this era of time. And, of course, the Christian church has not escaped this plague either. Much of this has to do with, with changes to the whole concept of personal identity. And that's why, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the whole thing of identity as it relates to tradition and then it relates to culture. And there's a reason I put them in that order. Because identity has to do with uh, who we are and how we identify. And that also then is, is related to tradition, of course, and culture. Now, <clears throat> and so you add to this change, the shift, you know, I was, uh, when I say the last 50, 60 years, that's about how old I am, but I was born early 60s. My growing up years was considered the era of the 60s. We talk about that sometimes. You have the hippie movement and, and all that went into that. We're going to be looking at some of that as it relates to this question of identity and the shift in society and how that has come down to us today. And I know... A lot of younger ones don't totally can't totally identify with that, but um, the shift of society is has has been profound, um, and every once in a while I see some pictures back in the early '60s, and it, I find it a little shocking. Maybe you do too. Maybe you find it hilarious. Uh, recently, I saw one of uh, a picture of of uh, men's pants. You know the bell bottoms. How many of you remember the people wearing bell-bottom pants? A few of the older ones. And there was a lot of other things that go in, go, went into that. You know, long, shaggy hair. That was part of it. And I don't want to get into this. I could get off subject here a little bit. But I'm going to save this for when we put it together in a message. But what I'm saying is it was, it was an anti-establishment drive. And what I mean by anti-establishment was... It was going against the norms, or what was considered norms, normal things, in that, in that era of society. And of course, you had the Beatles, you had all those, you know, all those things, and that shift. Now, I know, you know, some of you younger ones can sit here and say, well, that was back, you know, 50, 60 years ago. What does that have to do with us today? And I understand that. But what I, what I want to do is show that shift. And what has happened with what is what the effects of that that we deal with today, from the identity standpoint, which is affects our worldview. Now, add to all of that, and those changes, the digital world of modern communication, with the shrinking of the global village, as we would say sometimes. 
because digital, the modern digital communications have shrunk our world. You know, 50 years ago, if you wanted to communicate with somebody overseas, it was a very, very expensive phone call if they had a telephone or it was by ham radio. Well, you can send the letter, you know, and eventually get there. But you understand what I'm saying? Now it's instantaneous at your fingertips. And so you have the, the whole concept of, of uh, the modern digital communication, which has shrunk our world, as it were, figuratively. And that's why I say, you know, there's the shrinking of the global village. And the effects of this on personal identity, tradition, and culture is staggering. And we deal with it. We're in the middle of it. And I and that's my concern. I do not think that unless we fairly and squarely look at some of these things, we are going to, we, we do face the, the struggle or the temptation to be sucked in to this vortex of deception in the last days. And I would say, too, in my observation, is that we are facing identity crises. And I say that we, I'm talking about in a broad sense, not just us sitting here this morning, but overall in society, as well as in churches and in family life. We are facing an identity crisis that is almost like a pandemic. I think the last two years of a literal pandemic has definitely brought that to the fore in a lot of ways. And we're going to be looking at that part of it as well as the influence of that. But we are facing an identity crisis in so many different levels of society and homes and churches there's a lot of young people today, and I, you know, I deal with it at work, you know, and, and I see the effects even in our own setting here. The struggle of identity, and there's an identity crisis that is happening in society in a mass scale, and our families and churches are not immune to that. The effects of that. Some of the questions that I think we want to answer and endeavor to answer and to look at is, why is identity so important? Personal identity. Why is that so important? Why is, and what is a scriptural view of tradition in the context of identity? Because those two are related. And then with the present loss of identity and in society the scorn of tradition, how will we be able to survive the pressures of culture? And that's, again, the relationship of these three. What does God want us to know and to understand about these aspects in the last days? So that's some of the questions that are a part of our, our thinking in relation to this. I would like now to leave that part and go to some meaning of the, of the terms as we think about um, these three thoughts, identity, tradition, and culture. And then the end of this message, after that, we want to look at an example in the scriptures just briefly of, of, the, of how these work together. Now, the meaning of the terms. When I use the term, we're using the term identity. We're not just talking about, you know, you know there's various levels of identity that we have, whether it's government identity that we have, whether it's a social insurance number, um, driver's license, whatever. That's, that's an identity, all right. But what we're talking about is, of course, larger than that. The dictionary would say that identity is the distinguishing character or personality of an individual. Well, it's pretty basic. And so what we know about each other, what, you know, and all that relates to our lives. And so this could include nationality. It includes language. It includes personality, spirituality, morality. It includes family lineage, education, how we were, like our upbringing, how we were raised. All those things affect us, our identity, life experiences and life choices, the friends we have, and and our worldview. And that, that's not just the, the sum total of it, but... That, those things 
characterize a person's identity. Um, people that don't know me well or know my background, I was talking recently to a man in town, and we were talking about, and I said about where I, I grew up, and he was found it very fascinating, you know, that I grew up in the, in the States and within 40 miles of Washington, D.C., and moved to Canada when I was 18. That's part of my identity. You know, I, I can't really change that. You know, it's the, you know, you can't change the family you were born into and your life experiences and all of that. That's, that's our identity. And so all those things relate to this. Now, there is a sense in which personal identities are malleable. In other words, they can be changed to some degree. Now, we can't change our past, part of our identity, but we can change some of that identity going forward. In other words, you can add to it. Before I was a Christian, I would have had a certain identity. I became a Christian, and that identity is, is altered, is changed. It doesn't change what was in the past of who I was before, but going forward now, it changes that. Before, uh, where I grew up in, in Maryland, in that state, that was a certain identity there. Once I moved to BC and lived here way longer than I ever lived in, in the U.S., my identity has changed somewhat. It doesn't change where I was born, but my life took a different path. I'm just using that as an illustration. So there are choices that we make that can change our or add to our identities going forward. And we're glad for that because it means that if we have things that were negative or things that we may struggle with, we can change those things going forward. And we can make you know our peace with God and things like that. We, we can going from being a a sinner to a saint. You know we can do that, but it is still part of our identity. And we're going and those things could be traced in in Scripture as well. We want to do that um, later. Now. The, uh, the word tradition um, is used in various different ways. So we looked at identity and now at tradition. Now in Vines or Strong's, for the word meaning, paradosis is the word in Greek. And it's, it's called um, or it's described as a handing down or handing on to hand over. It denotes a tradition, a, a tradition that is passed from one to another. Now, it also, um, that's the general interpretation of the word. Now, in various scriptures, as it is used, it, it, it also changes a bit. You have the, um, the, the use of the word traditions. We're not going to look at these references today. Matthew 15.2, Matthew 15.3, Matthew 15.6. Uh, Mark 7, 3, 7, 5, 7, 8, Mark 7, 9, Mark 7, 13, and then you have Galatians 1, 14, and Colossians 2, 8, where the word tradition is used in our King James, interpreted from the, a word there in those ver- verses that are primarily referring to the teachings of the rabbis or the interpretations of the law. So when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about you know keeping the traditions of men the primary meaning there relates to the interpretations of the law as it was given to them. Of course, we understand that. You have the Mishnah and you have the Torah that give a lot of those traditions. Jesus, you remember, was scolded by the Pharisees because he sat down to eat there and he didn't wash his hands. That would be an illustration. It was one of the traditions of the fathers was that they said, you know, if you're going to eat, you wash your hands first. That's, otherwise, you're unclean. Um. And then remember that Jesus said, well, you know, not that there's anything wrong with washing your hands, but he said, you ought to be more concerned about washing what's inside and having your heart washed, paraphrasing that. And he went on to give that, give that teaching. Then also you have in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, in relation to the word tradition there is used more as it relates to apostolic teaching or instructions concerning the gatherings of believers and ordinances. And then also the scripture in 2 Timothy, um, sorry, 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, there the idea of tradition and more relates to Christian doctrine in general, where the uh, apostle uses the word um, there to, in relation to um, uh, 
a denial that he that what he preached originated with himself versus it being divine authority, and he uses the word tradition. And so there's various ways in which the word is used in the New Testament. Now, a dictionary meaning of the word tradition is an inherited, established, or customary pattern of thought, action, or behavior. We are very, very traditional people. Anybody in the world is a traditional person in the fullest sense of the word. What I mean by that is we have a tendency to use the word habits more. But there's a lot of traditions that simply based on the way a person does things. Every, you know, um, you know, as individuals, we have private, personal traditions. You know, whether, uh, I'll just, you know, one illustration, maybe a simple illustration would be, do you have your personal devotions in the morning? Do you have your personal devotions in the evening? What works best for you? The way you usually do it is a tradition. It becomes a, a tradition. In family life, um, do you eat supper or dinner, as it's called sometimes? Do you eat that at 5.30 normally, or do you wait till 7 o'clock to have it? I mean, it's just there's norms that in family life, it becomes a tradition, in a sense. That's just normally how, how you do it. And there'll be a host of others like that. And so you have it in personal life, you have it in family life, we have it in church life, you know, where any particular group of people that meet together as a fellowship or as a church, a brotherhood, there's going to be certain traditions that, that, that we, we follow. Um, the young people sit up front. Some places they sit in the back. Some places they sit in the middle. And the older men sit up front. Is there a right or wrong way to do it? No, not really. It's a tradition. Um, there'll be a lot of others in relation to that. We're going to be talking about some of those things. But what I'm saying is that it's a long-established custom or belief that has been passed down from one generation to another or one time period from another. And, uh, <clears throat> and so it, it's, it's been done. An inherited, established, or customary pattern of thought, action, or behavior. The handing down of information, beliefs, and customs by word of mouth or by example from one generation to another without written instructions. A lot of uh, traditions are not written out. Now, uh, the Jews did a lot of that. I referred to those. But in general, a lot of those traditions are not necessarily spelled out in written form. Now, the word culture. Again, I think we understand this. The dictionary says the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of of a racial, religious, or social group. So culture relates to, many times we use the term in relation to society, but there's aspects of culture within even you could say certain levels of family life or or a church situation, but of course uh, in society in general or any social group. Now, the whole idea of culture also is the characteristic or one of the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as um, the way a person does things, you know, and is shared by people in a certain place or time. If you ever traveled much into other countries, you'll come face-to-face with, with culture. You know, here you can move even within Canada, you know, depending where you go. I remember being in St. John's, Newfoundland, and you could, you know, it, was, it was still in Canada, but it was just different. Um, I have relatives, friends in Ontario, Nothing against Ontario, but it's, it's a little bit different culture there than what you have on the West Coast. Not right or wrong, I'm just saying a difference. It was, um, I referred to before, of moving 3,000 miles when I was 18, and although I'd been to BC multiple times before that, you still you settle into a new area, there's going to be some cultural differences. I grew up, it was considered... Um, not culturally right to, if you go to someone's place to visit, take your shoes off. That would have been considered, I don't know, say redneck or uncouth, maybe. 
you didn't, you know, but you moved to BC, and it would be considered almost disrespectful not to take your shoes off when you came in the door, right? And I've watched that over the years. I had no trouble making this switch. I, I had been familiar with it a little bit, so it was not a problem. But I, I, what I'm saying is, it's a cultural, a cultural thing. It's nothing right or wrong about it. It's just the way it is. I remember Brother Isaac Sensing used to come out. And started, he was our bishop for many years. He'd come out and he'd come in the door. I'd often pick him up at the airport. He'd come in and sit down on the couch and un- undo his shoes. He had the tall lace-up dress shoes. and He'd undo his shoes, laces, and put it, take his shoes off and sit him beside the couch. He said, oh, I'm so glad I'm in B.C. I can visit with my shoes off. We'd never caught him doing that back in Pennsylvania. But he understood the cultural difference, and he accepted that. The work in Bangladesh now, and you heard some of that last week, you know, in helping to establish a church there. We have so much culture related to our understanding and how we do things, which is fine. But you can't import that to Bangladesh. You know, and so we're trying to give them the platform in which to help them understand how they should write their own church standards to fit that culture in relation to Bible principle. Because we can be there, and we've had brethren there that are familiar with that for many years already, but it's still a North American perspective versus them taking the scriptures you know, and just applying it for their culture and how they need to do it and to make the Bible come alive in a practical way in their culture. And that's true of a lot of places in the world. So <clears throat> I think we understand that the whole aspect of culture. So that's the values and norms of society. Um, I think I might have used this illustration before. Brother Tim talked about eating rice with, with your fingers. You eat, well, basically eat your, your meals with, with your fingers. Um, I remember there was a story I read of a man from India that had come to, he was a businessman high up in, in a corp, corporation. I believe also related to the government. He, he was in one of the, I think it was, it's either Canada or the United States, and he was at this conference. And <clears throat> Someone, well, they were just visiting, and this man asked him, he said, is it true that you don't use a spoon to eat in India, that you use your fingers? And it was said in a way that was almost sarcastic. And this, this man carefully answered, but he said, yes, it is true that we eat our food without a spoon. We use our fingers to eat. In India. And this man said, oh, I just can't, uh, that's just, use your fingers to eat, put your fingers in your mouth. And he said, he's just, oh, I just can't see how anybody stands in doing that. And this man was quiet for a bit and he said, well, from our view in India, he said, to eat with a spoon, he said, we would say, how many other mouths was that spoon in? before it was in my mouth. Is that, that's a valid question, isn't it? He said, my fingers are my own. See, that's culture. We don't think about picking up a spoon that was in whoever else's mouth, how many times? We put it in our own. Never, never think about it from their perspective. That's repulsive. Those are interesting things about culture. It's not going to relate directly to what we're going to be talking about in relation to identity, tradition, and culture. But I'd like to I just point that out as an illustration of culture. Now, just a few thoughts now in closing to try to bring this together a bit in relation to these three. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. I'm not going to read all these verses. We could read the chapter 1, 
we're familiar with the story. Daniel, as well as many other captives, young men were taken away from Judah, taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, and there um, they chose among the best of those princes of Judah to be educated and to make, in in essence, to to implant them or embed them into the Babylonian culture. That was the idea. Um, Just notice uh, verse, um, well, verse 3, Daniel 1, verse 3. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. And then the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank. And they were to, uh, during these three years, they were to be educated in the whole concept of Babylonian culture. The food and also in all the um, science, knowledge, and all those things um, to get their education in Babylonian teaching and culture. It is interesting. Well, let's just go back to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, verses um, verse 4. You remember how that Daniel was promoted over the three presidents? And yet there was a lot of um, jealousy and competition. Then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the the kingdom. But they could find none occasion or fault for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any fault or error, error or fault found in him. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. Um, And then they went through this whole statue and that they were not to pray or to uh, worship anything except the the king for um, those uh, for 30 days. Now go down to verse 10, and we're familiar with this story. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Now, you think about the story of Daniel. From Daniel chapter 1, and what he requested there, that they would not eat of the king's meat, but he asked a vegetable, a vegetable diet. And it was God performed a miracle, because 10 days was not, would have not been enough time to necessarily prove a diet, one diet versus another, in a sense. But Daniel drew that line for himself and his three friends. We go to Jack, back to Daniel chapter 6. We have him there praying as he always did, three times a day, with his window open toward Jerusalem. What I find fascinating, and we're going to come back to this scripture in a later message, Lord willing. You have right in this whole story, identity, tradition, and culture. What was it that made Daniel different from, and his three friends different from all the rest of the young men from Judah that was carried into Babylon. The rest of them are gone, as it relates to history. They, 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 they were swallowed up in the culture of Babylon, as far as we know. They're gone. You take even when Daniel apparently wasn't there, or he was, didn't have to because of his rank in the kingdom, but his three friends there before the idol. It was only three of them that did not bow. Where were the rest of the young men? They carried a whole bunch of them away. Many of them. Where were the rest of them? What did Daniel do 
that, that preserved him throughout the whole of his life, right to the end, to his death in Babylon, what preserved him as a godly man, I believe it was into his 80s or 90s, he served there, served his God in Babylon. What was it? He goes back, I think, to chapter 1, where number one is he wanted to keep his Jewish identity. They knew who, he, who they were. And what is interesting is Daniel kept that identity of who he was as one of the princes of Judah throughout his whole life. He was an old man. There when Belshazzar, you remember, was feasting and drunken. And he said, you know, in that drunken state, he said, bring those golden vessels from the temple that we carry away in Jerusalem. You know, we're going to drink wine out of them. Well, he knew better. He was defiling something that was sacred. Apparently the kings had not used them before him. But he, but he wanted to profane, as it were, the, the God of Israel by drinking wine out of those golden vessels. You remember how the handwriting was on the wall? And they couldn't figure out what it said. And, and you remember the old queen was still alive, and she said, you remember there's this, I remember there's this man in the kingdom. Daniel was almost like put on a shelf, half retired. He wasn't listened to much anymore. But she said, I remember. And, uh, and she said that he was one of those who, who was carried away. She still knew his identity. He had kept his identity. He was still one of those Jewish boys after all those decades. See identity? Now, part of it, Daniel maintaining that identity and the importance of that identity was to keep him out of the from falling into the snares of Babylon, the culture. But you also know what he used to do that. It related to his tradition. Not only, I think, in the eating of meat. Now, he could have eaten lamb, but he chose not to eat any meat. They probably served pork, which would have been a violation. But he didn't just say, I'm not going to eat the pork. We'll eat the rest of it. Or whatever, I'm just using that as an illustration. That would have been wrong for a Jewish young man to do. But he went a step further and said, we're not going to eat any, any meat. We're going to be vegetarians. He drew that line, which was, which was a, a part of his identity, related to his identity. It also, you could say, somewhat related to the tradition. But then the tradition really comes in when you have him so consistently going every day and praying with his window open toward Jerusalem, three times a day he would kneel down and pray. That was a tradition, as it were. That was not commanded in the sense of praying three times a day. But that was a tradition that he had. Now, praying with his window open toward Jerusalem goes way back to when the temple was built in relation to Solomon. You remember that, um, that Solomon prayed there in the dedication of the temple? You know, in, in relation to God, you know, dwelling among his people? And Solomon said, you know, if, if, if your people are carried away into a far land sometime, that, you know, that they would turn and pray toward Jerusalem. And, and, and Solomon said that you would hear them from heaven. And God, you remember how the, the fire of God, and the presence of God came and filled the temple at the at dedication. And after all these years, you have Daniel holding to the, a tradition, a personal tradition of going and praying three times with his window open toward the temple in Jerusalem because of that promise that God had made with Solomon that if anywhere in the world your people are scattered, they pray toward the temple, you will hear them. What was it that helped Daniel survive the Babylonian culture? I asked that before, but you think of all that, those three coming together. Identity, tradition, and culture. Next time we'd like to look more at the aspect of identity, 
as we find it in Scripture. I said in the beginning, we face a crisis of identity. And I'd like to, by the grace of God, look at that, understand it, so that we can understand the, the relationship of these, these three aspects. May we continue to be careful in these last days. The, the devil wants us to lose our identity Sacrifice our tradition, the good good tradition. There's there's a misuse of it. We're going to talk about that. Sacrifice our good tradition, and be swallowed up in the culture of the age. That's that's the pressure that's on us. And may God help us to be wise, to be alert to these dangers. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we thank you that you're eternal. That you are that your knowledge is infinite from the beginning of time as we know it to the end of time. We thank you for the sacred scriptures that teach us so much about life and every aspect of life, every time period of, of history, we can see your work. We thank you for that. We can learn the lessons you want to teach us. We pray this morning for ourselves. We pray for our children grandchildren, our young people, the parents, each one, Father, as we live in the midst of a world, in the midst of a culture that is rapidly decaying and that we face the pressures upon us. So, Father, we just pray you would help us to understand your wisdom and understand your power and the work of your Holy Spirit within us to be able to live vibrant Christian lives in faithfulness today. And as we continue to face the reality of the last days upon the earth, we would help us to understand the needs that are present, what we need to do in order to, to survive and face the enemy in a, in a triumphant and victorious way. We thank you, Father, that you have never left your people alone to struggle, but where there is a sincere response to your will and way, Father, you have always come through with blessing and guidance and provision and have always made a way, even through times of suffering. And so, Father, again, we count on that. We, we, we place our faith in you for that, that you would help us in these last days to understand what we need to do to be faithful to you. And so, Father, bless each one of us, and may we continue in your will and way. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.